Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. In tonight's talk, I'm going to be diving into an explanation of why we have what could be called a shadow self, a realm of largely important emotional impulses, feelings, and memories that are kept away from our conscious awareness, compartmentalized, uh, repressed. We'll go into why it's important to become aware of the contents of this shadowy realm. To explain the existence of a, a blocked or shadow self, we have to start out with understanding that the human brain is a social brain. Beings, the dominant survival concern through our evolution was establishing very core, strong social bonds to maintain tribal affiliations, adhesion, connection. We are, as a species, extremely vulnerable when we are excluded from any, from a a clan or a tribe. Over the course of evolution, what gave our species its, um, provided us our, the characteristics that allowed us to thrive and become a dominant species was not uh, anything that had to do with physical strength. Uh, we don't have shells, claws, or um, even the abilities of other mammals to survive. But what we do have, par excellence, is the ability to connect. So the social brain is so important that it hijacked the physical pain circuits of the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. And uh, the feelings of distress, anxiety, self-disgust, pain after social rejections is extremely, extremely painful. Uh, the work of namely Naomi Eisenberger and Matthew Lieberman as detailed in the work of the clinical uh, psychology book, Social, about the social brain, eloquently describes just how efficient the human brain is in uh, creating emotional pain after any form of ostracization or loss of attachment to friends, family, and so forth. So we're wired to connect, and it's our fundamental drive, more important uh, than even food or shelter or safe or other uh, drives associated with safety is the drive to connect in the human brain. In childhood, uh, we start to learn the process of weeding out behaviors that lead to abandonment by caregivers. The behaviors in a toddler that are rewarded with attention by the caregivers, whether positive or negative, it doesn't really matter. Any behavior that receives attention is uh, repeated by the infant. 
operant stimulus. It's uh, it's the way behaviors in childhood are reinforced. So on the other hand, behaviors that lead to either uh, lack of acknowledgement or uh, a sense of abandonment are suppressed and not integrated into the infant's self-structure. So for example, an infant that grows in a family where uh, crying isn't tolerated well, where the parent essentially doesn't reward it with attention, uh, will learn to, over time, use other approaches to seek attention and block that very natural impulse, much like in other toddlers, if their parents uh, uh, isolate them after bouts of anger and frustration, that child over time might very well learn to <clears throat> rely on other core behaviors and emotions to seek attention. Then as the child begins to have increasing interactions with peers and educational systems, children develop more behaviors through what's known as social learning, the work of Bandura and uh, Albert Bandura, a very important um, uh, theorist in terms of developmental psychology. And he noted that, or showed that, much of our behaviors are learned through mimicking the behaviors we observe in others, imitating what is rewarded socially. So we, as a child who's five or six, we see other children in schoolyards being well-received, popular, getting attention by being cool or confident or aggressive, or even mimicking or acting on adult behaviors using adult language, the child will imitate those behaviors. <clears throat> so they're reinforced by peer acceptance and approval. I was hanging with a friend uh, in a park having lunch and uh, in the backdrop, there were different people playing soccer. And suddenly I heard this individual complain to a ref in very, uh, very adult, language that uh, they had been fouled in a soccer match. And I looked and the, it, it was a child, no more than seven or eight, who clearly was imitating the adults that it had watched play soccer and was using the exact same language uh, and gestures of outrage. So uh, we develop behaviors that um, are rewarded socially, and we begin to further block behaviors that we see in others lead to rejection. So when I was growing up as a child, boys that at a certain age act in, acted in any way that was not considered to be macho or tough were very often shunned. So in that culture, you learned very quickly to block and not acknowledge any impulses that could possibly be associated with uh, feminine impulses or feminine behaviors, not, you know, just there was this very strong gendered uh, at that point in childhood sense of what would be acceptable and what would not be acceptable. In 
1961, Irving Goffman, another very influential and important uh, uh, figure in psychology and sociology, wrote a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And he showed the, the weeding out of behaviors, uh, blocking uh, and systemically uh, shunting parts of natural human behaviors is continues to develop well throughout our adult life. He noted that rather than having a core self or personality, the way we act or behave is akin to performances organized to control the impressions that other people have about us. So in all of our actions and behaviors, even thoughts and goals, we are constantly, according to Goffman, and I think this is pretty accurate, trying to avoid at all costs being embarrassed. For Goffman, all of adult behavior is driven by a fear of being socially rejected, ostracized. And so we organize all of our behaviors as a way to manage the impressions that other people have about us, to present to the world an acceptable image. Goffman said that we, because of this, rather than feel our emotions from the inside out and just act on what we feel, we view ourselves from the outside in as if we are, uh, um, uh, as if we're like, outside of our bodies, We've, we try to monitor ourselves as the way others would see us. And in so doing, by viewing ourselves from the outside in, we try to weed out the behaviors, words, ideas that we believe could lead to some form of embarrassment or rejection from others. So we're not in Goffman's view, as human beings, social beings, we are increasingly over time inauthentic. Uh, even our most cherished goals are sculpted with the ultimate goal of managing the impressions that other people have of us. Now, um, all of these natural emotions from sadness to anger to fear to forms of pleasure and sexuality that might not be socially accepted or might have been punished in our family systems that get constantly uh, uh, <clears throat> blocked, um, that get not acted upon and not acknowledged are shunted into what Carl Jung called a shadow. He says that, I think Jung says the, the shadow personifies everything about ourselves that we refuse to acknowledge um, to ourselves or others. So the suppressed, what we push down becomes repressed, according to Freud. What we push down over time becomes held down unconsciously. We're not even aware of how much repression is going in to this process of weeding out natural parts, natural emotions that were uh, criticized or shamed previously in our life. In fact, today we now know that this role is largely a process of different regions of the brain 
including the anterior thalamus, which gates out, which means selectively filters out information that goes to the frontal lobe. And it's it one of the things it filters out as, a, along with things it doesn't view as important, uh, also memories and impulses that are disturbing and are unwanted uh, in so social ego functioning. So behavioral impulses that once would have reached consciousness no longer over time even reach our awareness. So what happens as a result of all this self-editing and self-filtering that eventually becomes automatic is we become haunted by feelings of incompleteness, of emptiness, or some of us, on the other hand, might feel haunted by a, a dark, insane passenger that's lurking just on the outside of our conscious awareness. We can even develop uh, a kind of fear of what would happen if we let go. Uh, some people, uh, as a way to try to manage blocked, filtered out natural drives, may often act them out in dissociative states known as um, shadow selves. Uh, I remember once I worked in counseling with an individual who had some very uh, traumatic events associated with sexuality uh, earlier on in his life. And one of the things this individual would do is once every couple of weeks would secretly would sort of skulk out of his uh, apartment and go to a sex shop. It was a ritual and then go into a booth and um, watch pornography to have some kind of sexual relief. But the entire process was done in a kind of fugue state where he couldn't even really narrate exactly what was going on. And he kept it almost completely unacknowledged. And it was only a long time into counseling where he even, you know, bothered to bring it up because he was so used to not acknowledging this part of his self-structure. So um, there are many ironic outcomes, unfortunately, that come about as a result of this these tendencies of suppression and relegating natural feelings and impulses into or blocking them into a repressed, receded realm or compartmentalized realm of the mind. I'm going to list four of them. And I hope that these four will, because there's many more, but I'm going to list just four ironic outcomes of the shadow self that uh, can be, uh, that can detail how uh, disruptive it can be. The first ironic outcome is that what we resist persists, as we've known not only from Freud, who showed that the unconscious or repressed is conscious, constantly pushing its way back 
into our daily life. In Freud, it was through slips of the tongue and through dreams and through jokes where we would, in jokes, Freud said people were um, channeling the release of repressed anger. Um, and we know from the work of Dan Wegner, much more contemporary, that whatever we banish from consciousness sets up an unconscious uh, right hemispheric process that actually brings it back even more frequently often. The work of the philosopher Jacques Derrida, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, uh, noted in his own work that whenever philosophers try to reject an idea, whatever they re reject or push out actually haunts their work and becomes even more present. So whatever we try to block doesn't go away. If we try to block our grief over loss, our anger over traumas or abuse in our life, if we don't acknowledge it, it obviously doesn't go away. Very often it comes out deflected uh, in completely dysfunctional ways. <clears throat> Another ironic outcome is that as positive emotions are the ones that we often perform, we're often very happy to, uh, even if we don't really feel happy, content, fine, uh, confident, we, we try to present that to others. So over time, positive affects begin to feel less and less authentic and true, whereas concealed impulses that we're never acting inauthentically to others, we're never performing negative emotions, because they're never performed, they're kept out of uh, social interactions as much as possible. The, the very impulses we repress start to feel more authentic than the positive emotions that sometimes we perform or present to others. No one ever performs anxiety. No one ever tries to look ang anxious or riddled with self-doubt. Most of the time people are trying to perform the exact opposite. So we begin to identify more and more with our symptoms or what is in therapy they call our symptoms, just our blocked affects and so forth. And this can lead to a form of eventually over time, hopelessness, a sense that this, this fear or anger or loneliness or loss or this, these uh, binge behaviors of mine that I try to block from everyone else are more true than any other emotion of mine. And so it becomes less and less easy for us to address them successfully. So <clears throat> uh, as I hinted earlier, the third ironic outcome is that when repressed impulses and affects are triggered by external events, um, the feelings that break through will not only be dysfunctional, but they'll trigger signal anxiety. Uh, they, will, they, will, they will trigger anxiety. As uh, Carl Rogers, the psychologist, noted that when the repressed and su suppressed and re repressed 
return. Uh, it's act, it activates, actually it was Freud that said that and Carl, and Carl Rogers seconded that when the repressed returns or the unacknowledged returns, we start being anxious about the possibility of social rejection. And so people, when repressed impulses start to make their way back to consciousness, uh, they might experience binges in alcohol or drugs or food binging or shopping binging as a way to try to deflect attention away from the the returning impulses from the unconscious and this creates increasingly emotionally desperate state states to emerge um according to freud all of our defense mechanisms were set to keep these um unwanted impulses that could lead to embarrassment uh, at bay and they include things ranging from intellectualization to denial. Intellectualization, sometimes people try to be very logical and um, rational, uh, hyper-rational during emotional events in their life as a way to keep from awareness the possibility that anger, fear, sadness, loneliness, or sexual impulses might emerge in those times. And I could go on with more ironic, but I think that's enough. It's there's not a good outcome for living a unacknowledged, unexplored life. So <clears throat> as when stimuli in adult life reminds us of these blocked impulses, the conscious ego becomes overwhelmed and very often disruptive events such as the the adult who doesn't know how to work with the uh, fear of speaking in public because they've never learned to process and integrate fear then they when they finally are asked to give some kind of talk in public they panic and run away because they have no instilled ingrained way of integrating fear into their self-structure. So uh, the return of the repressed does not have to be a painful disruptive event. In fact, as the work of all therapy and all uh, spirituality is in many ways, the goal of reintegrating the emotional content that has been in our earlier life shunted out of our behavioral vocabulary and kept outside of our uh, awareness or pre or our our, our um, cognizance so i'm going to list the four primary ways that people reintegrate with the shadow self the first is obviously through any kind of healing work with a therapist uh it's what i do as is you know as a pastor with the background in psychology it's what sponsors do in 12-step programs hopefully it's what um people uh in shamanic cultures do uh where we are encouraged to explore blocked 
impulses in regards to emotionally charged events in some kind of interpersonal context. So the therapeutic encounter is designed to create the safest space where over time the therapist is so trusted by the client that over time the client can risk very slowly acknowledging the feelings and emotions that normally are kept concealed from any kind of social uh, exchange. And I'm sure most of you are aware of it, that, so I'm not going to delve too deeply into it. <coughs> the second way that people integrate the shadow content into their ego functioning is through creativity. Uh, when we create, especially as spontaneously as possible without preparation, we bypass the very uh, filtering mechanisms of the left hemisphere, top-down filtering, and we, by free association, develop the ability to express painful, uh, discarded, or unacknowledged emotions. There's various ways to do this. Um, in, uh, I can't remember the book uh, where they have a uh, very wonderful book where they have people do morning pages where people sit and spontaneously write out as quickly whatever uh, comes to mind as a way to unblock them from overly egoic um, uh, information, uh, in, uh, uh, filtering. Um, there's other processes as well, non-dominant handwriting. So if you're right-handed, take out a, a crayon or felt-tip pen with your left and just write without thinking or draw without thinking. And very often blocked emotional content will start over time to bypass because your dominant hand is of course associated with if you're right-handed, it will be your left left hemisphere, which for most people is associated with inhibition, uh, filtering, and uh, kind of uh, social uh, weeding out of unwanted material. <clears throat> There's other ways in cr to creatively um, come in contact with blocked emotions. Uh, drawing with one's eyes averted, uh, obviously free association, uh, spontaneous movement uh, and five rhythms, the chaos portion of the dance. And uh, one way I've even noticed is uh, when my dad was very old in his 80s and I would visit him every week and uh, play the piano while he would sing and I'd play these old um, kind of a sh show tunes because we had this fake book of show tunes and I'd play uh, the music and my dad would sing and he would have forgotten all of the uh, lyrics. And so he would just sing whatever came to his mind and amazing free association about his mother and his childhood and about uh, weird, strange sexual fantasy and all that would come pouring out of this guy. It was very 
interesting. I was, you know, uh, because my dad never had much of a filter to begin with, but still all this block stuff came out. So creativity, especially the faster, the less edited without any intention of showing it to anyone else, just, just some kind of gestural work is a very, very uh, efficient way to reconnect or reintegrate. Um, in uh, art therapies and music therapies, that's the crux of the therapy and how uh, blocked emotions and feelings and memories are reintegrated into one's ego functioning or self-structure. Another way is psychedelic practices. As a Buddhist pastor, I don't indulge in this myself, but I would be amiss not to mention that many individuals uh, employ successfully uh, substances such as ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, and these substances actually are very efficient in disrupting thalamic gating. If you, if you recall from earlier in the talk, the region of the brain that blocks out unwanted material is the thalamus. And so when you take a psychedelic substance, uh, it disrupts the gating and unconscious material returns to the, uh, our awareness. And so blocked material can return or blocked emotions, appreciations, fears, or yearnings that we disavowed years earlier can become, uh, we can be made aware of. And in the uh, huge study, Emotional Breakthrough and Psychedelics at the Imperial College of London by six clinical psychologists note that um, integration uh, can be used in what's called a psycholytic process. Psycholytic means mind loosening or allowing repressed emotions and feelings to return to the to consciousness. And then, if they if you do that, uh, it's very important to follow it up with an integration where you create space. Uh, to make meaning of the feelings and sensations and perceptions that occurred during the trip so that you can inform your daily life functioning with these insights and you can increase the potential for personal transformation. So that's the third way. Uh, and the last way to integrate uh, blocked material into conscious ego functioning successfully is through meditation practices. Who knew? Who thought I would bring up meditation as, an, as a way to lead into the meditation portion of the evening? Well, meditation and mindfulness have long been used in various therapeutic modalities as ways to process emotionally charged events without blocking or discarding authentic emotional responses. So after frightening or infuriating or scary or unpleasant uh, social events or uh, interactions, rather than feeling the need to turn it into a story that other people will appreciate and block out uh, the bulk of our feelings that were activated by the event, in mindfulness practice, we can sit and investigate 
the foundations of mindfulness in the Buddha's words, we investigate first what happens in the body and the breath when I hold this image of an event that happened. Two, we can explore the feelings and three, the emotional states that are activated by this event. And the way we do this is not by turning it into a story because it's the story that activates the left hemisphere, the thalamus, the top-down, um, essentially suppressive mechanisms of the brain. Instead, we just hold the image, which is primarily right hemisphere activating, and we use those synaptic connections to feel the somatic markers that arise in the body after an emotionally charged event. And in that way, we no longer repress our authentic experience. We integrate it into our life. So that's my talk. Take it or leave it. I hope something in there was worth paying attention to. And now we're going to practice an integration meditation uh, where we try to process an emotionally charged event, not by turning it into a story that will win social acceptance, but by actually, in a far more authentic way, uh, allow us to have or become aware of the full range of our emotional vocabulary and the impulses that we're very often unacknowledging. So find your most comfortable seated position. And while you do that, I will say that as usual, everything I do, the counseling and teaching is entirely supported by donation. I never charge for anything I do. So uh, if you'd like to support your friendly local tattooed Buddhist pastor, uh, the way you can do that is through Venmo. And that's uh, Dharma Punks with an X NYC or the PayPal button is on the podcast site, which is Dharma Punks with an X NYC at Podbean, and, uh, or you just go to dharmapunksnyc.com. So that's about it. That's my pitch for your support. And now what we're going to do is close our eyes, and we are going to bring our awareness into the body by finding the sensations either associated with the breath. So for example, the expanding and release of the abdomen or the chest or the sensations of Inhalation at the tip of the nose. Or if you don't want to work with the breath, no worries. Find the most pleasant sensation in your body. Perhaps a sensation associated with the palms of your hands. Or maybe as you soften the eyelids, maybe the eyes become increasingly relaxed. Or if you 
let go of any tendency to create any facial expression and just allow your cranial muscles to release, maybe you'll find that the forehead becomes very soothing. Or maybe another region of the body will start to feel pleasant. Either the sensations of the breath or the sensations of something pleasant in the body will be the anchor. But for those of you who don't want to work with at first body sensations, that's okay. You can use sounds occurring in your environment as an anchor. Just don't tell a story or visualize what's creating the sounds. Just listen to the sounds. If you're working with the breath, just find one area where the the physical movements associated with ventilation, breathing occur. Anywhere will suffice. Just notice the movements and sensations of the in-breath and the out. And just see if over time you can influence the breath to be more complete on the inhalation and much longer on the exhalation. You can even at first breathe to a counting pattern counting up to four on the in-breath and then counting up to five on the exhalations. Or just keep your awareness resting on a pleasant sensation in the body. And if there's painful sensations that yearn to be known, that's fine. Bring your attention to them, note them, and then return to the pleasant sensation. So we're not blocking pain out of our awareness. We're just noting what's ever painful, returning to the pleasant sensation, resting on it. And then if there's the pain or discomfort continues, returning to it, acknowledging it and then coming back to that which is pleasant. Or just simply listening to the sonic ambience around you without visualizing and what's creating sounds, being just as aware of silence as you are of any distinct sounds, and uh, just keeping radically present in that practice. If you're working with sounds, try to expand your awareness beyond the 
size of the head or body so that it almost can feel like your awareness is now spreading to the space around you. Everything becomes happening inside of the mind. And when thoughts come up, don't try to push them away. Just acknowledge them. Allow them to be there in the mind. And just keep bringing your awareness back to your anchor. The sensations of pleasure, breathing, or the sounds around you. The first thing to remove from any meditation practice is self-judgment or self-criticism. So long as you're actively practicing, that's all that is needed to enjoy the many benefits of a meditation practice, including the diminishment of fear over time and anxiety. So we'll sit here in silence, and then when I return, I'll lead us into the emotionally integrative part of the practice.
So at this point, I'm going to transition us into the second part of the practice. What I like or invite you to do is bring to mind a resonant interpersonal event that happened recently. Hopefully, one that, if possible, you haven't too forced into a very specific story or interpretation. But if nothing comes to mind but those types of experiences, that's fine. But if you can bring up something that is still raw, as it were, something that still uh, feels unresolved, on something that you haven't figured out or processed, that would be very helpful. And just hold in mind a specific resonant image that will serve as a representation of this event. So, or if not one image, a couple of images, but so these images might be in your mind, um, an image of the situation or the individual that was emotionally intense, maybe someone that you had a disagreement with or are frustrated with or disappointed or miss. If you're not someone who can hold visual images, just think of the most simplest two or three words uh, that could represent this event. For example, uh, fight with uh, Adam or uh, disappointed with Sarah, whatever. Just find a very simple few words that just will act as a heading for the experience. And hopefully if you can conjure the image in your mind or have the emotionally resonant phrase, then bring your awareness into your body and first just see if there's any shift in the um, way, the pattern of breathing. <clears throat> if sudden, if muscles and your limbs become tense, or if you feel your body suddenly beginning to list or sulk, or if it becomes less easy to even be aware of your body, or uh, do you feel a sense of tightness or deflation? Just what happens, if anything, to your body? And just note, even the subtlest change 
<clears throat> that might have occurred from when we were previously focusing attention on a pleasant anchor like the breath or sounds and now what has happened to the body very often when a uh, we bring to mind a challenging experience we'll note that the breath will become either faster or shallower the out-breath will feel very faint or incomplete indicating an emotional activation state And then moving on to what we could call feelings, gut sensations. So very often when events are scary, if we bring them to mind, we'll feel the fear as a tight stomach. If something on the other hand feels outrageous and wrong and is angering, we might feel a tightness in the forehead, locking of the jaw, sort of intensity around the eyes, and an upward movement in the front of the torso, like energy trying to be released. Whereas fear or sadness is a sense of energy moving down, becoming smaller, feelings of retreat, in the body, anger might, the feelings are those before we shout or want to hit something. With loneliness, there might be just this yearning or this sense of sadness that can be felt very much as a kind of heaviness in the head, in the shoulders, the throat. And just keep being observant of the feelings that are brought to bear without any need to label the feelings or the physiological state. And then ask yourself, what is it that I want to do right now because of this event. For some of us, it might be giving up on somebody, cutting them off, or for some, it might be seeking them out to 
once again, try to tell them how we feel if we haven't gotten that across already, or it might be uh, just wanting to shout or just become aware of all the impulses, especially the ones that are not socialized, the ones that are just that whatever it is we're keeping ourselves from exhibiting, just ask what that is. Try not to turn it into a story, just a feeling in your body. Just become aware of an image maybe of what you'd like to do, but don't allow yourself to do, and just create space for that. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, you can, whenever you feel like it, uh, slowly open your eyes and allow in the sensations of the world around you and try to mix them into the embodied awareness that we've developed in our practice.